Romans 5. Chapter 11. 5. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> There's another preacher in here. Chapter 11. It's King James. <laughs> At least he uses me. Verse 17. Romans 5, 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, I'm not going to do a bunch of review again. Just kind of mention. Obviously, we're into the good news of the gospel that Paul proclaimed. He proclaims the gospel at the end of chapter 3 after he's dealt with the sinfulness of man and proclaims justification by faith alone. Chapter 4 gives us that great example of Abraham who was justified before the law even existed. Before the Mosaic law was even existed, he was justified by faith. And then we're, what we're in now is our, the fruit of justification or... Um, uh, the results of justification. So, yes, you're justified by faith, faith, but what else? You have peace with God, remember? We rejoice in tribulations, remember that? And we also, the, the big point I think that Paul starts to make here is our union with Christ. That's what justification by faith alone does. It brings us in union with Christ. It makes, brings us in Christ. That's what we see over and over again in Scripture where it says, in Him, or in Christ Jesus, or in Jesus Christ, or in the Lord. Because we are, we are brought into the Lord, having union with Christ. And that's what Paul's starting to face towards right now. But before he did that, he started dealing with our union with Adam. And that's what we've been looking at, is the union with Adam. So, and that's kind of, he's making this transition right here. But I have three points today, and unfortunately one point I've already had before. So I'm just saying that death reigns. Volume 2. It's my second mixtape on death reigns. Then, then second is superabundant grace. And then third is you reign. So the first point here, death reigns. Volume 2. Now obviously I think in our text we, we've noticed that Paul has been dealing with our union with Adam as our federal head. I don't know if you guys, I say that often when we're talking about union with Adam, we're talking about federal headship, which means he stood in our place. He was there standing in our place as our substitute in the garden. And that's what Paul's been dealing with. And this is a very important truth. And it's one that when we see that, we can see the gospel, right? The second Adam is our federal head. The first Adam was our federal head in the garden. The second Adam is our federal head on the cross. He was our substitute. If we trust in Him, right? That's what Paul's point. Paul's point isn't simply to show that you have a union with Adam because what does that do? All that does is lead to death, right? And that's not what Paul's... That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't a message that points you to death. The gospel is a message that points you to life. So Paul dealing with his union with Adam is doing so to show us our union with Christ. Just as Adam's sin brought about death, the second Adam's obedience brought about life. So you can see how this is central to the gospel. This isn't a peripheral thing. This is something that's central to the gospel. Federal headship is a gospel issue. Without union with Christ, you're lost, dead, and a sinner. 
because of your union with Adam. Because your because Adam was your federal head, was your representative in the garden, and he sinned in your place, you stand guilty before God. And without union with Christ, that's where you stay at. Now I don't know if you remember, but I mentioned the other week when we were looking at the word rain that it was used five times from chapter from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. And then this verse is actually used twice. And we're going to look at the contrast. The first time is death reigning from one man's offense. Obviously, that's my point. Death reigns. So let's go back to the beginning for this. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. We're going right to verse 1. Genesis 3, 1. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And when he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the, of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God does know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the, fruit, the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the midst, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I have commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gave me gave to be with me, she gave me the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this thing, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, and above. And upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy, con and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I have commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herbs of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Y'all see the picture there? God said, don't eat of this one tree. Don't eat the one tree. You can eat of all the fruit from all the other trees. You could probably actually eat the whole tree if you wanted to. But don't eat of this one tree, right? 
Just this one tree. Don't eat of this one tree. And what did they do? They ate, right? And now we didn't actually, God didn't say Eve, well, we had no record that God said it, but Eve said God to the serpent, God said, don't eat of this tree, neither touch it. God didn't say that according to the scripture. But they did, didn't they? <clears throat> they went and they ate of that tree. And what did God say when they had eaten of that tree? Thou shalt surely die. God put the perfect man in the sense that Adam was morally perfect in the garden. He was morally perfect. He had no sin. He had no sin nature. He had a, what, what we people like to argue today, Adam actually had a free will. He could have actually freely chosen to do good or do evil. We don't have that anymore since the fall. All we have the choice to do is this evil or that evil. He had no flaws. He had no sin. God, after creating Adam, He said His creation was very good. When we get to the New Testament, what does it say in Romans chapter 3? There's none good. No, not one. God, after creating Adam, said it was very good. He put Adam there as the first man, the representative of the human race. And when Adam chose to sin, he died spiritually. And later, he died physically. So he sinned in your place and brought death to all mankind as our representative. He stood in your place, and when he fell, you fell. Paul is clearly proving this to us in Romans chapter 5, has he not? But also has proven that death reigns because of that. Death reigned because of that. Do you remember what reigned means? When I, when I dealt with this the other week, it means to be a king, to rule, to govern. That's what death does. So since Adam, death was mankind's ruler, king, or governor. Because of your union with Adam, you were under death. Death is your king if you're under Adam. If you have union with Adam still. And I mentioned, as I mentioned before when I preached that the first volume one, that, that death wasn't a nice king. Death was a tyrannical ruler. One that we as humans, we fear. We dread. We never want to meet him, right? None of us wake up and be like, I'm excited to die. Right? We want to avoid that. We like to act as though it can't happen to us, right? And even in death, what do we do when the person's dead and in the casket? We make them really pretty, don't we? So that it doesn't look like death. We don't want it to look like, we don't want to see death. But death reigns. And we're all headed there. This sin-cursed earth is full of death. It's full of it. Not just humans, but animals and plants and everything, right? Everything's dying. We see death everywhere we look, especially this time of the year, right? You go outside, you see death everywhere. I mean, the, the, the leaves are falling down dead, right? That's why I couldn't stand living up north. <laughs> I hated it. Death reigns in our world due to the sin of Adam. And on the side note on this, 
This is the crux of the argument for the creationist, for the young earth creationist, right? That those that reject, those young earth creationists are those that reject the, the unbiblical nonsense of evolution, right? And the Big Bang, and the, and the gap theory, and, and he, even they go to so, so far to say the theistic evolution, that God started evolution. But the problem with all those is, they place death before sin. If mankind evolved from a piece of slime, and there was death before sin, then the scriptures are wrong. Then federal headship, what is federal headship then? If there was death before sin, what is Adam? He's staying in my place, who cares, right? Theistic evolutions and his proponents teach that God used evolution to bring about man. However, evolution teaches death before man, so not as the result of a curse. Do you see the problem with that? Like I said, that was a little side note. Adam sinned, therefore death came, and the curse. Which is funny because we had a song right there. They were, they, they, we were singing about the curse, right? Adam sinned, therefore death came, and the curse, and all men died because of the curse. Sin brought about a curse, and all those under the curse shall die. That's what Genesis chapter 3 was about. It was about the curse. The curse that when Adam sinned, it wasn't just death that came. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. Romans 8, 18. This is the result of the curse right here. For I reckon that the... See, that's not KJ. That's Southern. <laughs> For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed unto us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willing, but by reason of him who had subjected him, the same in hope. Because a cre creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of create corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. So what do we see in that? That's the result of the curse. We see suffering. We see that creation was subject to futility. We see the bondage of corruption. And we see groanings. This is, this is what we deal with as humans, right? This is we, we deal with these things every day. Yes, death is coming for us all. But we deal with this stuff every day. That's the curse. And the result of it, due to Adam's sin as our head. Because of the sin of Adam comes all these things, plus our great enemy, death. There was no death before Adam because death came from sin. And before Adam, everything was very good. No sin. But now, after Adam and his sin, death has a foothold in our world. Death is here reigning, and we can see it. So once again, death reigns because of Adam's sin, and the curse is present 
because of Adam's sin. And all of this was passed on to you because he was our federal head. Because he was our representative. Death is passed on to all of us in here because of Adam's original sin, right? That's what you get from Adam. That's what you get from being born into this world as a human. You get the curse. You get death. But, the next point. I didn't want to spend a bunch of time on, on death reigns because I dealt with it two weeks ago. This next point, super abundant grace. Not just abundant grace. Super abundant grace. We all know the difference between some like man and superman, right? <laughs> So left in Adam, you're dead. Stay in him, and you will not only perish in this world, but also in the next. You will not only have death in this world, but you'll have the second death. You'll have eternal death if you stay in Adam. That's your gift from Adam. Merry Christmas. There's your gift from Adam, death. And if you stay in him, eternal death. But now we look to the second Adam, Jesus Christ. He came into this world sinless as well, right? Just like Adam came into the world sinless, Christ came into this world sinless. Where the first Adam was defeated, the second Adam conquered. The first Adam failed under temptation, but the second Adam prevailed under temptation. The first Adam failed to protect his bride. The second Adam died for his bride. You see the contrast? And in our context here, the one that's foremost to us here in our text is the first Adam brought about the curse and death. The second Adam provides grace and righteousness and life by becoming a curse. Let's not move too far though. Let's deal with this verbiage in this, in this verse here in, in Romans 5. It says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one. We dealt with that. Now, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. What does this mean? What does it mean? What does it mean to the abundance of grace? Well, first we must answer what grace means, right? Grace is unmerited favor. It's getting what we don't deserve, right? This is the easy way to tell different grace, mercy, and justice. We all deserve justice. When we broke a law, justice is getting what you deserve. You deserve death from breaking God's law. Justice is Him giving that to you. Mercy is Him not giving that to you. But grace is Him taking something else and giving it to you that you don't deserve. Favor. Unmerited favor. It's getting what we don't deserve. In this section, though, it's speaking more specifically about saving grace. Meaning that this is a grace that leads to your justification or your salvation. This is the grace that, that, that saves you. I actually can't think of off the top of my head any place in Scripture where grace from God means anything else than that. It's not just a simple unmerited favor like waking up this morning, right? You don't deserve that. We don't deserve to wake up this morning. <coughs> that's an unmerited favor, right? But that's not what this is talking about. We're talking about the unmerited favor of salvation. Or to put it this way, as Paul did, it's the unmerited favor of having the gift of righteousness by one, Jesus Christ. Though you, being in Adam, deserve death and a curse, if you're in Christ, 
You have grace and righteousness. Let's break this down a little bit more. When it says that you receive abundance of grace, the word for abundance actually means super abundant. That's why, that's why the, my, my point is super abundant grace. That's what it means. It's not just abundant grace, but it's super abundant grace. So you, I actually think the work of salvation is greater than the work of creation. Why? How can I say that? In creation, what do we say? God created ex nihilo. God created out of nothing. Out of nothing, God created. That's a miracle, right? There was no resistance there. There was no object to change. It was just nothing. There was nothing, God said, and it, there was. However, in the work of salvation, God is recreating His enemies into His friends. He's recreating a criminal into a child. He's going to one that in and of himself would be unwilling and making us willing. It's not just grace, but abundant grace. And it's super abundant grace. Let's see another scripture on this. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John 1, 14. Jason, you might read 14 through 17. I'm sorry. That's okay. 14 through 17? Yes. CSV. That's fine. That's why I want you to read it. Right. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For Him... For from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came from Jesus Christ. You notice what it says at the end of verse 16 right there. Grace, let's say, upon grace. It says, uh, KJV says, for grace, grace for grace. John Gill, listen to this. I have two quotes from him today from this, and it's just because I can't say it any better. The phrase only designs the freeness of grace and the free and liberal manner in which it is distributed and received, along which with along with which I also think the abundance of it at first conversion with all after supplies is intended. And that grace for grace is the same with grace upon grace, or listen to this, or heaps of grace. We all know what that is, right? Well, we, we, I don't know if we all do, but when you say, give me a, a heaping teaspoon, right? It's not just you get a little tiny teaspoon right there. You get the teaspoon overflowing. That's how I make my coffee, right? It tells you one tablespoon, I'll put a, a heaping tablespoon. That's why it's black tar when it comes out and delicious. <laughs> but this is this right here in this context this is super abundant grace that contrasts the law right the law he says the, the law came through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ the law brings more sin and death but to those that have received Christ have received grace on top of grace they said your cup runneth over right we know that it's never ending it's overflowing grace 
has been and is being poured out upon you as a Christian? Because of how great you are? Not at all, right? In spite of how bad you've been. Despite that I've failed every day this week. God is still pouring grace, heaps of grace on top of me. On top of grace. On top of grace. And it never stops. Ever. Is that not amazing to us? That there's, there's nothing, as a Christian, nothing you could ever do to stop God from pouring His grace upon you for all of eternity. Amen. And it's not because of how great we are. Because it's in spite of how great we are. That's how God says to the Israelites when He says, I have chosen you. Why did I choose you, Israelites? Because you were greater than all the other nations? No, you were the least of all nations. But I chose to love you because I chose to love you. And because I keep covenant. He did it because of himself. That's why how he pours grace upon us too, right? It's because of himself. He is gracious. That, that was his reason back there with the Israelites, and that's still his reason now today. He pours out super abundant grace on his elect because we, not because we are so great, right? But because God has chosen to love us and He has made a covenant with His Son that He would give Him much people. He told him, Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thy inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. He promised that He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. And that the increase of His government shall be no end. That's a Christmas verse. We love that verse. Unto us a son is given. And the increase of his government shall be no end. It shall continue to spread. Do you think God will fail at this? God forbid we'd ever think that. He has promised to save many people and in doing so, pour out super abundant grace upon them. But let's remember the context of grace, right? Before we move forward. Yes, we as Christians have received super abundant grace, but how? By coming to church? By taking communion? By getting baptized? By reading the Bible? By praying? By, by making offerings? By singing songs? No. Simply, or is it simply maybe God just looked past our sins? Absolutely not. By paying for them for us. By paying for our sins for us. God paid for our sins for us. It says in Acts 20, 28, the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. It wasn't the blood of another. By becoming a curse for us. Remember Adam? That brought about the curse. God became a curse for us. By dying for us. By taking what the first Adam earned for us and partaking in it and overcoming it. The first Adam, listen, I'm, I got little, four little things right here. The first Adam earned the curse. He earned it. The second Adam became a curse for us. It says in Galatians, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. So the first Adam earned the curse. The second Adam became a curse. The first Adam earned death. The second Adam died for us. 
But God committed His love toward us, right? And what, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The first Adam brought about sin. The second Adam became sin for us. <clears throat> for He had made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him, right? The first Adam's sin brought about eternal death and hell. The second Adam's righteousness brings about eternal life in heaven. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in other words, Christ has reversed the curse. The first Adam brought about the curse. The second Adam reverses that curse. And he did so through his life by obeying the law, through his death by making a payment for sin, by his burial and resurrection, by defeating death, sin, and hell, and by his ascension and sitting down at his right hand of, the, of his father, claiming victory and interceding for us. This is how we receive superabundant grace. That's how it's done. It's done through the gospel. It's done by Christ. So the question is, do you see it as superabundant? It is superabundant, but do you see it as superabundant? I'm putting a message at your feet right now. It's going towards you. I don't get up here and just practice this. Is this superabundant grace to you? Did Christ do this for you? Well, I don't know, right? Maybe. I don't know, Pastor. Well, look to Him. Rest in Him. Believe in Him. He has reversed the curse and has given superabundant grace. Our last point here is you reign. It's kind of scared of making that point because there's so many messages out there that are man-centered messages and I don't want it to be that. And it won't be that. But the, in our text here in Romans 5 it says, for by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Shall reign in life. That's what it says. And it says it about you as Christians. You shall reign in life. And I know we don't think about this too often, do we? Here's my other quote from Gil here. When he's talking about shall reign in life, he says, In corporal life, they are not subject to death as a penal evil, as other persons are. And though they die this death, they triumph over it in the resurrection morn. They will rise again to everlasting life. Second, they reign now in spiritual life over sin, Satan, and the world. And then they will reign in eternal life. They will sit on the Thrones, wear crowns, and possess a kingdom of glory forever and ever, and all by and through one Jesus Christ, and not on account of any of our works or merits of theirs. Notice he mentions three ways in which the Christian will reign. I agree with him on these. First is we are subject to death. We are not subject to death as a penal evil, meaning as a penalty for evil. I preach this often, but one of my favorite verses is in John chapter 11 where it says, Jesus says, if you believe in me, you shall never die. That's what he said. And then he says, do you believe this? In that context, you know what Jesus is dealing with? Lazarus was dead. Physically dead. Four days. And stinking. 
But he says, Lazarus, come forth. And he raises him from the dead. So he's dealing with physical death there. And he says, if you believe in me, you shall never die. So he's obviously at least dealing with the physical aspect of it right there, right? Now it means much more than the physical aspect. And I think that's what our verse here also tells us. And the second way Gil mentioned here is he says, they reign now in spiritual life over sin, Satan, and the world. And I'm going to come back to that one. But the third way he says, they will reign in eternal life. We think about this one, though, don't we? This is probably the main way we think about reigning. If you think about the Christian reign, the main way we think about it is in eternal life. We think, oh yes, one day I will reign in heaven. After the consummation, after this earth is you know, done, I'll reign in the consummation. And that's true, and it's a blessing, right? It's a blessing we look forward to. That's our great hope. Not hope like I hope it's going to happen. It's our great expectation. But let's go back to the second point because I do believe that's Paul's main point here is that we will reign in this life. He's not talking about the life to come. You shall reign in life. This life. He said you shall reign in life. And I don't know if y'all named your daughter this, but life there is the word Zoe. Yes. In this present life, you will reign, brethren. Not just sometime in the future, but now. You are reigning now if you're a Christian. You may be reigning badly, but you're still reigning. Turn with me to Rome, or Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1 6. It says. Now, i, I got to admit something on the text here. This, I don't want to get too deep and lose people. But when they translate KJV, they translate the word kings. Here. But I don't believe it's the word kings. The ESV or NASB would have it correct, correctly translated. But listen to what it says. It says, And hath made us... He's talking about... Let's look at verse 5. I'm sorry. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. ESV would say kingdom. He's made us into a kingdom and priests. And it says he's made us into kings and priests. It's pretty much the same idea though, right? And this is actually the same root word that's used in Romans 5.17. The word that's for king right there is the same word that's for reign. You shall reign in life. When it says death reigned, death is king. Same idea here. He has made us kings and priests or kingdom and priests. That's you. If you're in Christ, that's you. It's talking about us, right? As a Christian, this is what it's talking about. It's not talking about some future time. This is talking about now. You are kings and priests right now. You are a kingdom and priests right now. You reign now. When Christ said the kingdom of God is at hand, 
when you read through the Gospels, what do you see, you see him saying? Oh, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. What do you think he meant at, at, at hand? 4,000 years from now? No. Just like Paul when he said to Timothy, uh, pretty much talk, he was talking about his death, he pretty much says, my death is at hand. Did Paul mean he was going to die in two, three, four thousand years? No, and then he was about to go. The kingdom of God is at hand. Like it's almost here, it's right now. You know when Christ says this, I think what he was doing was displaying the, the writings of Daniel were being fulfilled. If you turn, let's look at that real Daniel chapter 2. Daniel is always the hard one finding this little small book. Of like nine chapters. Eleven. Twelve chapters. Daniel 2. Now let me let me let me tell you the context of this before we jump into this verse. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He has a dream of a great statue. A great statue, and that statue had a head of gold, and it had his chest and his arms of silver, and his belly and his thighs were as brass, and his feet and his legs were as iron and clay. This is his dream. This is what he sees. He sees this great statue. Then he saw a stone come in and break the whole statue to pieces. And then he saw this stone grow into a great mountain. Sophia probably had crazy dreams. She tells me they're dreams, and they're, they're the craziest dreams. <laughs> but this is a dream. There's a great statue, and this stone comes in, hits this statue, and, and obliterates it. And then all of a sudden, the stone grows into a great mountain. Daniel explains the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And he tells him that the statue represents four kingdoms. And those four kingdoms are the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, in the Roman Empire. And then verse 44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain which without hands, and that it break in pieces, the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof. What's he telling? God's setting, going to set up a kingdom. That kingdom is going to come and destroy all these other kingdoms. This is what Christ is talking about. The kingdom of God is at hand. The stone. It was that stone. It was that stone that destroyed them kingdoms. So let me ask you this. We're on this side of history. We're on the other side of the history. Did that happen? Did the kingdom of God come in that first century? What happened to the Roman Empire? Is it still, is it still here? No. No. It, it was consumed. The kingdom of God came and smashed those empires. And is this stone growing into a great mountain today? This is what Christ is pointing to. 
The kingdom of God is at hand. That stone that's going to consume all kingdoms is at hand. This stone is the same stone Christ mentions to Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church. That's the stone that the builders rejected. And he's smashing kingdoms and this stone is growing into a great mountain. This has happened and is happening. The stone has come. The mountain is growing. And you as a Christian are part of it. And in that, you are reigning with Christ. Let me show you another verse. I'm sorry to go back up here. We're Revelation chapter 2. <clears throat> 2 verse 26 and 27. It says, And he that overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. So, y'all pick that up? He that overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I have received of my Father. According to that text, who is it that shall rule with a rod of iron? And break into pieces the, 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 the potter, the, the pottery. It's the church. It's to the one that overcomes. Right? That's what the text is. He that overcomes, he shall, he shall give you power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessel of the potter shall they be broken to shivers. And then, but to not divorce it from where it's coming from, even as I have received of my father. Does this not sound like the same kind of language as Daniel chapter 2 there? The stone that destroys and consumes the other kingdoms, or you could say nations, this is the church, the kingdom of God. God has established His kingdom in the church. We are the kingdom of God. God is working through His church to consume all nations. That's happening. But I don't see it, right? Well, let me ask you, how many disciples were there in, say, 25, 26 A.D.? How many disciples were out there following Christ? I mean, he had his 12, and there's a few others. Mary, maybe 20, in 26 AD. What happened at Pentecost? Thousands, all of a sudden. It goes from, it goes from you know, 20, 20 25, to, to first in the upper room, there's 200, and then to Pentecost, there's thousands. How many are there today? Millions. Yes. Is the church not growing? Does the church not grow and spread? How? By the preaching of the gospel. That's how, we, that's how it's done. That's what's meant by the rod of iron. It's not that we go around with a real literal rod of iron like try to beat people into the kingdom. We preach the law and we preach the gospel and God uses that. And the word that we speak, first, we speak in love. But second, the word that we speak is, is sharper than any two-edged sword, right? It says, No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to Him to whom we must give an account. 
So we reign here spiritually. And we reign as kings and priests, bringing forth the Word of the living God to a dying world. And God uses that to translate people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. But we must not separate this from its source. Just like He said, even as I have received it from my Father. So what do I mean by not separating it from a source? Well, reigning and ruling with a rod of iron, consuming the nations and kingdoms of this world, growing from a stone to a great mountain, can only be true because this is the power of Christ. Not because of you. Not because you're so strong and you're so smart and you can, you can argue people into the faith, you can, you can debate people, you, know, you can love people into the faith. It has nothing to do with that. It's only because of Christ. I've already quoted, I'm going to go back there. You don't have to turn there, but it's Psalm 2. Okay, I'll get there pretty quick. Psalm 2 and verse 8 and 9. It says, Ask of me, like I said, I already quoted this, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thy inheritance, and the other parts of the earth for thy possession. This is the Father talking to the Son. And then He says, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Isn't that what was just said in Revelation? About those that overcome? About the church? This is something that's given to the Son. He shall rule them with the rod of iron. He shall dash them into pieces. This is the power that is inherent, inherent to the Son. It's only in the Son. And when He sat down at the right hand of the Father, the Scripture said, The Father said to the Son, Sit at my right hand until I make all thine enemies thy footstool. Christ is doing that. He is sitting down at the right hand of the Father until all enemies are made His footstool. And also it says in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Then comes the end when He shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When He shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for He must reign till He hath put all enemies under His feet. Christ is reigning. And this is the reason and way by which we can reign. Christ is reigning. This is why Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and Holy Ghost. The Great Commission is tied to the fact that Christ is reigning. And He says, Even I, I will be with you always even until the end of the world. He has all power and all authority, and we are His body. So by extension, we have it. That's why He says, Go ye. And once again, I'll leave this at your feet. Are you going? Are you obeying this command? Are you bringing forth the Word of God to those that need it? Or are you being selfish, prideful, and shameful? I can't speak to them because I'm too shy, right? I can't speak to them because they might make fun of me. I can't speak to them because I'm too comfortable. Brother, we're called to so much more. Look to Christ, follow Christ, and reign with Christ. Amen. I'm trying to get through these two points of application as well. Call to repentance. First, to the one that does not know Christ. What God calls you to this morning is to believe on His Son. To repent from your sins and to look to Christ. 
Nothing else. Nothing more. Nothing less. To repent from your sins and look to Christ if you don't know Him. You are not reigning in life with Christ, but you are you being in Adam are under the condemnation of death. That's the only thing that's between you and hell is death. For the non-believer. That's all it is. There's there, between you and hell, all there is is death. The only thing keeping you from that. And with the fact that we all die, right? We're all going there. And none of us know the time nor cause of our death. As an unbeliever, you should have no cause for relaxation. No cause to sit back and think, I'm fine. I'll wait. I'll repent later. I'll believe later. You don't know. Taking into account that 150,000 people will die today. <clears throat> almost two every second. And any one of those seconds could be you. And if the only thing separating you from hell right now is death... In that moment that you're taking from this world, there will be no gospel preacher there. There will be no man standing there heralding the gospel asking you to repent and turn from your sin and come to Christ. It will be over. There will be no Bible there for you to pick up and read about Christ. You'll be standing there naked before Him in condemnation. And He will say to you, Depart from me, you work of iniquity. I never knew you. And he will cast you into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the call this morning is to flee from that and flee to Christ. Christ has soaked up hell for those that come to him. And there is super abundant grace at the right hand of God. Come to him. And to the believers here. You've seen and I, you probably already knew that you reigned in Christ. You know the scriptures that we call the Great Commission. You're familiar with them. Where Christ tells us to go because He has all power and authority. You know that sin doesn't have a hold of you. You know sin has been defeated by Christ. You know that you reign over sin, yet you open the door for it. You allow it to come into your home. You aren't preaching the gospel like you should. It's time to repent from that. But Jeremy, I already repented. I repented years ago. Repentance isn't a one-time thing for a Christian. Repentance is an ongoing thing. One that I could say is an everyday thing. Every day. We, we could be called repenters as well as believers. If a person is a believer, they are also a repenter. We are constantly fighting sin, and yes, sometimes we lose. And yes, sometimes we lose miserably. But when we lose that battle... The war is not lost, right? That war has already been won. So we fight those battles inside of that. It says that God's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. And I know our current mindset among Christians is, yeah, I have the Bible and the Holy Spirit. That's all I need. I don't need to go to the church. I don't need anybody else. It's just me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit. We're two or three to gather, gather together, then we have a church, right? When that verse actually doesn't actually teach that at all, actually that's for church discipline. When you're about to get removed from the church, when two or three are gathered together, Christ is there. And it could be true that that might be all you need, right? I mean, if, if you were stranded out in the desert and there's nobody else around and you have the Bible, oh yes, you, you have the Bible and the Holy Spirit, that's all I need. 
But how many of us are there? But God's given us more than that, hasn't he? He's given us more than the scriptures and the spirit. Because we need more. The Holy Spirit does his work within the church. The Holy Spirit isn't just out there. He's, he's here with us. He dwells within us. And he uses us to, to encourage and, and edify and comfort one another. You show me a Christian that's a loner and isn't involved in the church, and I'll show you someone who is completely radical in a bad way. Or a person who thinks they're right about everything and everybody else is wrong. You know that person that everybody's a heretic but me, right? I'll show you a spiritual babe who thinks too highly of himself. That, you know, that proverbial baby that thinks he can win a wrestling match against a sumo wrestler. Yeah. Would we have any nerve at all to stick any of our children in a wrestling match with a sumo wrestler? But that's what the person outside the church, I'm just by myself. I don't need anybody else. You think too highly of yourself. This is why the church is here. Yes, we're here to, to advance the kingdom, but also to edify the saints. Will the church let you down? Yes. Yes. Will the church hurt you? Probably. But you're part of the church. And you will let down. And you will hurt others. So what do we do then? Just run to the next one? I'm just going to run to the next church. And what's going to happen there? You're going to get hurt there, or you're going to hurt somebody there. Because what? We're all fallen creatures, right? We don't run and hide from one another. We come to one another and help one another. And that's what we're called to do. And if we're not doing this, we need to repent of that. So Christian, you have received super abundant grace and righteousness and reign in life through Christ. You have this. So repent from your sins in that life, right? The second point, the last one, is call to work. Now that you've repented, it's time to take the world by storm, right? When I wrote that, I thought of, you know, Gandalf coming down the mountain with a big armies behind. But that's not really how Christian life really works, is it? We would like it to work like that, right? Where we just, I'm, I'm leading, leading thousands of men out into, into the world to preach the gospel. But what, what it typically works is you're at work by yourself with one other person, and what do you get? Hey, we're going to talk about Christ. It said that early disciples, that they turned the world upside down. It says that in the book of Acts. They turned the world upside down. Can that be said of you? If somebody were to write a narrative about your life, would they write, you turn the world upside down for the gospel? What's so different with you than Paul or Peter or John or James? The scripture tells us they're of like passion. Oh, but Jeremy, they're apostles. Well, what about John Gill? What about Jonathan Edwards? What about Charles Spurgeon? What about George Whitfield? What about R.C. Sproul? What about John MacArthur? All these men that have laid down their lives for the gospel and seen thousands of people saved. God used these men mightily, and you're no different than them. You are no different than that. When you, when you read these stories of these great men of the faith, that could be you. You are no different. They struggle with the same sins you did. 
They failed in the same areas that you failed in. Yet God used them mightily. Because they are greater men than you? Absolutely not. They are the same as you. But, you know, I work all these hours and I must spend time with my family. I need some me time too. You think for one second these men didn't struggle with that? Yet God used them to turn the world upside down. What are you doing with your time if it's not being used by God and for God? It's a waste if it's not used for that. So let's redeem the time for God and His glory. But once again, I'm going to go to your guys' feet here and hold your feet to the fire. Husbands, are you loving your wife like Christ loved the church and gave herself for it? Wives, are you respecting and submitting to your husband like you should? Children, are you obeying your parents even when you don't feel like it? Even when you think they're stupid, right? That's, you get those teenage years, mom and dad gets, gets stupid, right? I've already been through it. I have a 21-year-old. They know better. Parents, are you raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? What else matters? I want my son to be the, the, the next great football player, basketball player. Why does that even matter? If I get out there, out there on the field or the court and they die, what does it matter? If he, he, his jersey's hung up somewhere. If they're in hell. Single men and women, are you laying down your life for the gospel in all areas of your life? Are you reigning in life? Or living defeated. Kill sin and fight the good fight for His glory. It says to take up your cross, right? Take up your cross in the gospel message and live according to that. And don't look back like Lot's wife, right? And you turn into a pillar of salt. Don't look back. Take up your cross and go forward. Stay fixed upon Christ. Keep Christ in front of you, looking unto the author and finisher of our faith. And go to war. Amen. Amen.